Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Dr. Ben Bravery trained as a zoologist and worked as a science communicator before being diagnosed with stage 3 colorectal cancer at the age of 28. After, ungo- after undergoing 18 months of cancer treatment, Ben decided on a career change. In 2018, he became a doctor and is now undertaking specialty training in psychiatry. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Ben Bravery about his book, The Patient Doctor. Ben? Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. Ben, let's start with the ugly reality of the patient doctor. We've all heard of bowel or colorectal cancer. None of us think we're going to get it, of course, certainly not at the tender age of 28, as you did. What is the physical reality of colorectal cancer and its impact on one's life? Wow, it's it's a disease which means you've got a tumour in the colon or the rectum which is basically the large bowel. But depending on where that tumour is, how advanced it is and whether it's spread um, will mean different things for the patient and their symptoms and also the physical and psychological cost, I guess, of the illness. For me, uh, bowel cancer meant that I had a lot of pain, uh, both associated with the toilet and just generally. And some days I would be constipated and then I might have a run of diarrhea which at the time was very confusing because I couldn't understand how one day I could be blocked and then the next day it would be runny. Eventually the tumor inside me started bleeding and so I passed blood into the toilet bowl little bits at first and then I had a couple of quite significant bleeds and you know it it is gory because uh, looking into a toilet bowl is not often a pleasant experience given what's in there. Uh, and then you go and add, you know, all this blood on top of it. It's got this really visceral, almost horror film sense about it. And and that's what I felt a lot of the time, actually. I was quite scared of what I would see in the toilet bowl. I became fearful of going to the toilet. Um, it's important to say here that I'd been living in China for about four years um, you know, gastro is not uncommon in China, especially when you want to eat amazing things and travel all over the country. So I was used to kind of erratic bowel movements, tummy pain, the occasional fever, but it kind of kept coming day after day. Eventually, the bleeding got so bad that I grew pale. Uh, a couple of times in public, I fainted and I got these really profound night sweats on a nightly basis, you know, the kind of sweat that you'd have to change the sheets. It was so icky. Um, And and so that's kind of what bowel cancer was for me. This physical horror meant that I kept a lot of it to myself. And so this was my world. It was almost like a secret between me and the cancer. I didn't let a lot of people into that detail because as you say, it can be a bit confronting to talk about. Well, it's a very personal illness too. So it's, understandable why people don't really want to talk about it, certainly given some of the um, the descriptions you've given us today. But after your initial diagnosis, you sought a second opinion 
Now, I wondered whether that second opinion changed your perspective. Um, was there more or less clarification around your diagnosis or the way forward? Less, actually. And that was a very uncomfortable feeling because the second opinion was really profound in two ways. One, it kind of came about by accident. So I wasn't told by anyone at all that I should be getting a second opinion. It just happened to be a random neighbor who lived next to my mother who overheard her talking about my cancer, suggested I get one. And she happened to be an ex-cancer nurse at a hospital. And uh, so I called them. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing was that the, the second opinion was really different from the first opinion. The first was quite optimistic, uh, very charming, um, friendly surgeon, thought we could go in quickly. Uh, he looked at the CT scan, but nothing else, thought it looked, could be keyhole, thought I might not even need chemotherapy and I could get back to China in eight weeks. The second surgeon took a much more conservative approach. And I was kind of in a rush to get this thing sorted, right? Which is a understandable. I was 28 and I had a life back in China I wanted to get to. I'd just fallen in love. I was building a business, but the surgeon wasn't going to be rushed on any of that. They put all the treatments on the table until they had more data and they wanted more data. So I actually left that consultation feeling more negative about my prognosis and the cancer. I felt more uncertain and I didn't gel with that surgeon up front probably because of that but also they've got a you know different way of um, interacting with patients and I almost didn't take that opinion I almost didn't follow that advice because of that but I had to sit down and work out what, exactly what I thought was going to be in my best interest and pull out you know the heart from the decision and just kind of think about it as pros and cons on paper and I did that and I chose that surgeon and it was a life-saving opinion. There's no doubt about that now. Had I gone ahead and had the treatment that the first surgeon proposed, um, my body would be very different today. And um, to be frank, I might, I might not be alive this many years later. Did those conflicting opinions affect your trust in doctors and the healthcare system in general? I don't think so, because I was aware that there, there were people that doctors are people and doctors have opinions and that nothing, rarely anything in science is black and white. I wasn't a doctor then. Um, I was just a scientist who happened to study animals. So I had some understanding of the scientific process and how people evaluate evidence and how they determine, you know, the right way forward. I didn't judge them for having different opinions. I think that what I realized though, is that the system almost should make sure that you get a second opinion. It's almost like it should be built into the model. It's not that, you know, the, the, the first opinion may have been fine and I, I may still be alive. I don't know. Right. But it seemed like as things unfolded that the second approach was probably the better one, uh, the more careful one. And if anything, I think that gave me more trust in the system. Right. Because, I had two opinions. I did a bunch of reading myself and it seemed like things were coalescing around a particular treatment. So I actually felt more confident after initially feeling really uncertain. It's interesting that you said that the first opinion, the first doctor was friendly and upfront. The second opinion, uh, cooler is the impression that I get. Do you have to like a surgeon or health professional in order to trust them? 
this is the million dollar question. Uh, I've written the book and I still don't know the answer, to be honest. I think what happens is you want to make the decision based on things you understand. So I didn't understand much about, you know, the technical words they were using. I had to look up, for example, what a sigmoid was, which is the part of the colon my tumor was in. I didn't understand anything about the mechanics of chemotherapy or the surgery or the recovery. But as people, we have conversations every day. And so I was having a conversation with a person and I was getting feedback on that conversation. And it's almost like that's the bit that I could process. That's the bit that I could understand. And so that's the bit that I tried to make the decision based on. Um, but I had to stop and put all of that technical stuff back on it. I grew to, to really like the surgeon um, that saved my life. I One Christmas, I even made him a T-shirt, right, that kind of said superstar surgeon. Um, and I awkwardly gifted it to him one year. Um, and so, like, we, we did grow to have that relationship. But that that doctor just has a, a particular way of interacting with patients. And some patients might find that okay or not important, and some may. To me, it was important. And certainly now, as a practicing doctor, I do think about that a lot. I think about what I'm, what I'm projecting to the patient, how they might be reading what I'm saying in my tone. Prior to the surgery, which was comprehensive and extensive, you were urged to have a CT scan, and, and that seems to have been a humiliating experience for you. How could that experience have been improved? So I, I needed uh, a workup, basically, before they started radiation therapy, which was needed before the surgery. They had to shrink this thing down before they went in and tried to cut it out. And that's because uh, the second surgeon wanted an MRI originally, and it showed that the tumor was much more complicated. It was touching my bladder. It was involved in some of my reproductive anatomy. Um, it was serious business. So to, to get the radiation to the tumor, you've got to be mapped. And they do that using a CT machine. Now, I knew that I'd have to go in and have this mapping, and it would take a little while. I'd be marked up first with felt pen and then tattooed. So that once they got me in position under the machine and they lined up all the laser beams, they could take that and feed that information to the radiation machine, which would deliver radiation exactly where they'd marked me. What I hadn't been prepared for was just how vulnerable I would be during this. So I walk into this really large room. It looks like it's on the, the deck of some futuristic spaceship. It's cold. It's lit in a weird way, giving everything a halo. I've got a gown on, right? And anyone that's worn a hospital gown, I'm sure you have noticed that they're impossible things to navigate. They don't fit, uh, despite being one size fits all. They don't do up. They're confusing. I'm still never quite sure which way to put it on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is the opening at the front or the back? I know. I still don't know either. And I'm a doctor. Um, and so I, I wear this thing. Now, for people listening, I'm two meters tall. So the gowns really don't fit me, right? They like an exaggerated pillowcase. Um, I'm told to strip all my clothes off. And also you're never quite sure how much to take off at these things. They're never really crystal clear about it. But I took everything off. So I'm just wearing this gown. I'm laying on the table. You know, um, it's falling off in places. The strangers in the room who were doing a great job at their job, but they're strangers. And I'd never met them before. And I was just rolling with the punches because I had no idea what was coming. Uh, I'm slowly being marked up. The gown ends up falling off 
my hairy bums in the air for everyone to see. I don't know who's on the other side of the one-way mirror watching us. Um, there's machines whirring around me. I'm being tattooed. At the same time, I'm told I've got to grab my scrotum, right, and yank it down towards my knees to get it out of the way of the radiation. And because the tattoos have to be in exactly the right spot, I've got to mimic exactly how I'll be on the radiation table. So I'm engaged in this really awkward behavior, basically handling, you know, my, my own genitals on a cold table with no clothing on being tattooed. I came away from that thinking, wow, I really needed a heads up about that experience. And I just thought it would be a very simple thing just to sit down with someone before they go through that and explain what's going to happen at a minimum. At a minimum, you could just run through the steps. So then this will happen. And then this will happen. This might happen, but it's okay. We've got another gown to put on you, or it'll be a bit cold in there. Now, remember, you won't have your underwear on just to one, run through the system. It might have also been nice to see it and kind of have a little tour beforehand and go on both sides of the one-way mirror, right? So my mind wasn't racing about who was watching and laughing on the other side. This was an example in healthcare where the routine, it's almost like a conveyor belt. Patients come in, they have the thing they leave. They come in, they have the thing they leave. And the people doing the job, for them, it's routine. This is their nine to five. And it just felt like that was an opportunity for the system to pull out and remember that these are real people going through this and that those things can matter. Because I still think about that day, right? And I'm 10 years down the track and I've had a lot of treatment since then, but very few occasions made me feel as vulnerable as I did that day. Was that kind of characteristic of the surgery and the treatment that you've received following that CT scan? It varied. To be frank, you didn't, it depended on the particular service you were having about whether you got a lot of preparation or a lot of education about what was happening. The surgery, they can't, they can't really, they can show you on pictures and diagrams, but they can't really give you an idea of what it's going to be like. But the thing that really surprised me when I woke up after my six hour surgery was all the tubes coming out of me. I just had no idea how many there were going to be. I had a tube sutured into my skin coming out of my neck. I had one in each arm fold. I had a tube collecting waste from the wound in my tummy. I had a stoma collecting feces. I had three tubes coming out of my penis. I just, and you know, just when you're trying to process everything that's just happened, again, a little warning about what, what I would wake up to and how I might feel seeing these things just would have been helpful, or at least someone coming in after the surgery and just going through each of the things with me, rather than, again, leaving me in this vacuum where I wonder, right? And when you wonder and you're scared and you're in pain, your mind always goes to the worst case scenario. It's just nice if we can familiarize people with some of this before they experience it. As part of your recovery, you took a detour through alternative medicine. Now, for a man with a background in science, that's unusual. What did you think it might offer? Important here to say I didn't ever go alternative. I went complementary. And there's actually quite a big difference between the two. So complementary medicine, the idea, regardless of what the treatment is, the idea is that it supports the main treatment. And so I had signed up to radiation therapy, chemotherapy, surgery, and then four more months of chemotherapy. But I wanted some other things along the way that I could do because that felt like everybody else was going to take care of that. Someone was mixing the chemo, someone was putting the needles in, someone was cutting the tumor out, someone was designing the radiation. I could do very little. You know, often it's just go home and wait, 
which to me didn't feel right. I had to exercise some control over my body. So I did things like meditation and I went on a vegan diet and I exercised. And then I kind of started to think about some other more out there things like energetic therapy, right? Or Chinese herbs and acupuncture, things that I knew wouldn't directly affect the cancer, but they would make me feel better. And then what happened is they started to make me feel so good that I thought, actually, maybe I can just do this for a little bit longer. Maybe I can live this lifestyle, have this energetic therapy, have the acupuncture and avoid the big scary stuff. And I actually sent an email to my surgeon late one night. It was about a week before surgery. And I said, oh, look, I think I can do this other stuff. Can I have a six months to try it? And he very quickly called a meeting because he saw the warning sign. And I was a person of science and I did come back to science, obviously, but I wavered there for a while. And it showed me that anyone actually is capable of wavering when you're challenged by something that's so foreign and so scary like cancer treatment is. In the process of trying to participate in your own care, you also talk about the way you found care in people other than doctors and nurses. Who were they? What did they do for you that other healthcare professionals couldn't? Yeah, this was the really big surprise, actually. I'd never really been sick. I'd never broken a bone, for example. And so I was new to this hospital business. And I ended up spending uh, close to four weeks after my surgery, even though I was only supposed to be in hospital four days because I, I got unwell. I spent a lot of time interacting with a lot of different people. And the nurses and the doctors were busy. And they often weren't asking me about the kinds of things that were really important to me, how I was feeling. Like you say, I, I got that from other people and it was unexpected. Um, one, of the, one of the providers was a music therapist, which is this amazing person that takes a keyboard and a guitar around the hospital, sets up in a little spot, has a chat with patients about songs they like, and then will play something they like. It felt just a beautiful way to connect with someone outside of whether I was farting and had my bowels opened and how was my appetite. And that person took an interest uh, in my life and I asked them a favor, which was my one year anniversary with my girlfriend occurred while I was recovering from surgery. And uh, Sana was coming in that day and I asked the music therapist if she had time to pop back and play us a little song for our anniversary. And she didn't think twice about it. And it just felt like something I couldn't have talked about with anyone else in that hospital. I just didn't feel like I had permission or that they'd care. And so I often found from the allied health network in the hospital that they're really listening. They're really connected to the people lying in those hospital beds. So after all this, it prompted you to go to medical school at the age of 32. And what was that like as a mature age student? It was weird. Um, med school is very strange. I had done a couple of degrees already, so I was familiar with university, but it had been a little while. Med school is unlike anything else. It's ultra competitive. You have to you know, battle against thousands of people to get in. The interview system is really strange. It's like this weird speed dating, staccato, CIA, bad cop, good cop interrogation. Um, once you're in there, you're kind of thrown into this massive area of science, which is medicine and healthcare and epidemiology. And you're expected to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and go over and over it again. 
And I was okay with that. I was, I had done some study before and I'd signed up for this. What struck me about medical school was it's really competitive. It's a little bit aggressive. So sometimes the teaching is actually quite hostile. It can almost be like, almost like the lecturers and the doctors are trying to humiliate you or bring you down a peg. And thirdly, there were very few patients in the preclinical years, we learn about them and we study them in textbooks and PowerPoint slides. And then in the clinical years, they're in hospital, sick and in clinics, but they're not really included as teachers. And I was desperate to understand about other diseases, like I knew about mine, but I didn't know about other diseases from that side of the hospital curtain. And that felt like a real omission at medical school that patients weren't actually valued and respected as providers of medical knowledge. I, f- I found that quite disappointing. So now that you've had the experience of being both a doctor and a patient, that prompts a whole string of questions. And we all know that uh, the healthcare system is very much under pressure at the moment. I wonder how difficult it is to maintain compassion, which is absolutely necessary, but to maintain that compassion under pressure as a doctor or indeed any healthcare professional. It is so hard. And now I know that. So I went into medical school thinking I just needed to sort things out for patients and make things better for them. And then I realized that medical students, junior doctors and senior doctors were struggling too. And both sides of the doctor-patient relationship were hurting. And one of the main ways they're hurting is they're not able to deliver the care they want to, that they've been taught to deliver. The healthcare system is under enormous pressure. I wrote the the bulk of the book before the pandemic. Um, but the pandemic's just brought all these issues to the surface and now health is almost front page news on a daily basis. If you're not given the time to be compassionate, it doesn't matter how good your training is, you won't be a compassionate healer. It doesn't matter how much time you have. If you haven't been given the right training, you won't be a compassionate healer. So what I came to realize that it was actually a function of education and time and that you need both of them in order to get the kind of doctor that patients deserve. After all this, the diagnosis, the surgery, the treatment, and the long recovery, one would have expected you to have looked towards, say, oncology or gastroenterology or some field more closely related to your own experience as a patient. But you've chosen to specialise in psychiatry. Why psychiatry? It was a surprise for me too, to be honest. I did go to medical school to become an oncologist. As a part of understanding that the other side of the patient-doctor relationship was struggling, I appreciated that a lot of the way we teach medicine and a lot of the way we reduce patients to problems didn't sit right with me. I'd felt it as a patient. I'd felt it lying in a bed being reduced to a problem. And now I was seeing how that education was reinforcing that view. A lot of the specialties do that and they reduce patients to problems. They don't focus much on anything outside of the particular thing that the patients presented with. But I felt and I knew that there was so much more to the patient world. Psychiatry has a whole person view of people. It's not a perfect specialty by any means, but it's the one that allowed me to be the kind of person, the kind of doctor that I need to be. Now, I'm in this for the long game, right? There was no point sticking to my guns and going into it to the specialty that I originally thought I might if the process was going to burn me out if I wasn't going to be able to connect with patients how I wanted to and be the doctor that I wanted to be to me that was the most important part in conserving my humanity 
I had had to protect it in medical school and I have to protect it as a junior doctor. I adore the way psychiatrists view the doctor-patient relationship. For example, they call it an alliance, right? They respect at its heart that it's mutual and that there's trust and that you need trust. And despite not having any lived experience in mental health, I don't think that the skills I developed or the appreciation I have at medical school and as a patient don't transfer over empathy and compassion and listening and validation. Uh, they, 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 they go into any field. I can use them in any domain. As I read your memoir, I suppose your early experience, your first job at a hair salon and then your training as a zoologist and your interest in animal behaviour, I wondered if that somehow deep down was your calling. <laughs> I think that's a really nice theory. I've thought about this too, honestly, when I was writing the book. There's a few things there, aren't there, in my childhood that really set me up well for this kind of job. The other thing that my childhood set me up for was being resilient. And if things don't go your way, finding a way somehow to, to, to make the situation you've got work. So I think, yes, the salon was talking to people and hearing their stories and being around very vulnerable people, right? Going to the hairdressing salon is actually quite a vulnerable experience. And then studying animals and their behavior, thinking about animals and ecosystems and as a part of a network of other organisms really helps me now as a doctor. You know, I see someone laying in a hospital bed. I know there's so much more to them that the environment I'm seeing them in now is not the environment that they live in. It's not their lounge room or their bedroom or dropping their kids off at school. And so I've got an appreciation of that. It's built into me. Dr. Ben Bravery, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Dr. Ben Bravery about his book, The Patient Doctor. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.